Hi, everyone, and welcome to the special edition of Freedom from Addiction, Truth, Justice, Below the Service, and the Neil Haley Show. And I'm excited to welcome the program, Reverend Wynn Henderson, MD. Wynn, how are you? Doing good this morning, Neil. How are you? And uh, Doing great. Guest uh, this morning. Everybody excited always about our guests. Doing, doing great. Good morning, guys. Okay. So um, the book that we're going to discuss this morning is called Early Winter learning to live, love, and laugh again after a painful loss. My guest uh, is Howard Bronson. Howard's been on the program maybe six times talking about his other books. And I would uh, suggest uh, that you go to my website, podcast website, and scroll backwards and listen to all of his programs. Uh, Early Winter is about a memoir of Howard and his relationship to his father. And his father had an untimely death at around age 60. Um, how are you doing, uh, Howard? I'm doing great. And it's always a joy to talk with you. And if I can quickly say, that one of the things I really enjoy about not only the interviews, but our friendship is you always have more questions than answers. I, uh, I had uh, Larry King on my program and at the time he had about 35,000 interviews and I had a 150 and I said, Larry, <laughs> you didn't graduate from high school, but you're the smartest person that I know. Why is that? And he said, because I ask more questions than anyone you know, and I listen to the answers. I thought that was really well. Then you, great. You're in good company. Okay. So um, what I what I want to do is, I think I'll start with another another interview that I read this morning around three o'clock in the morning. And it has to do with Gore, no, Norma and Jean Crumley. Um, they were married for around 65 years and then she died. Now, during that interview, he said, underneath the humor, there's the evident sadness that comes when your best friend, your companion for nearly six decades is gone. Crumley's personality is large enough to fill an arena, yet in the quiet moments of time together, his loss is palpable. That first wedding anniversary without her, a week after she passed away, he continued their tradition of going to the Olive Garden. Worried about him, his son and daughter-in-law joined and, and asked him uh, what he thought about taking a younger lady out to dinner. When uh, his son bristled to this uh, suggestion, he pulled an old photograph of Norma from his chest pocket. There's the old saying, time heals all wounds. It doesn't actually heal anything, I think, but it allows you to get through it. Today, uh, Crumley has a hard time describing the loss. In a letter he wrote uh, after our first meeting, I had no idea how to comfort someone who had lost a spouse until Norma's going home to be with her Lord Jesus. The depth of the hurt and the grief is of such 
a magnitude that unless you've been through it yourself, you absolutely have no idea what it's like. I don't know that I can describe it even now, except to say that half of me is missing, for she was such an important part of my life for all those previous years. Would you like to make a comment about what Crumley had to say? Absolutely. I think that in laws of somebody that we deeply love, there are things we can do to honor that loved one. And my book, Early Winter, is really about honoring my father. And what I think, the way I think we best do that is by remembering the love and being grateful for the love. I mean, who am I? We don't get to pick our parents. And I had a wonderful mother, brilliant mother, and a wonderful, strong father. And I'm so grateful because it gave me a foundation. And when so often in my practice, I encountered clients who really didn't have viable parenting. Some did really well, reaction formation, but many who didn't have that foundation, uh, you know, never seemed to be able to make up for that gap. So what I hear and what I see is, you know, our sadness is a way of honoring those that allowed us to be the people that we became. Okay, we're going to go through your book and uh, I'm going to read from your book and then if you would give me a comment. In the introduction, you said, nothing can change what has happened and my father never would have wanted us to dwell on the coal callousness surrounding his death. He would want us to focus on his life and what he taught us. So enjoy early winter and get to know my father and how special he was to our and to this world. Yes. It, it's interesting because I was looking back on the book last night. It's had 11 printings. Um, there are still glitches in the book as we, as we've seen and, you know, typographical issues as we've seen, but for some reason, the book has worked. The book has kind of inspired people, uh, to have somewhat of a catharsis about their own relationships. You know, there's an expression, God created man because he loves stories. And this may well fall into that genre of stories of living and life that inspire us to reflect on our own experiences of love and of loss. Um, in your introduction, do you have a copy of the book with you or not? Yes, sir. Uh, the page is entitled, but it's under the uh, subtitle Cherish Grief. I think it's a, a poem that either you or your, your mother wrote, probably your mother. And you- That was my mother. And you put poems into the prose, which works really well. I do that in some of my books, uh, including uh, Freedom From Addiction 3. Uh, so there's a poem here. Can you get to it and read it or will you want me to do it? You're talking about I am your parent? No, I'm talking about my love, my lover, my other self, my best friend has died. 
It's, um, he is gone from me. I am alone. No matter that I am surrounded by friends and relatives and children and everyone, I am so alone. The longing for him and the missing of him is an acute physical ache. The loneliness and quiet is anguish. Time and I are engaged in a battle. Time wants to assuage my pain, but I will not cooperate. I will keep my pain as a pearl. I will spin a shell around my anguish and hide it deep within my heart so no one else may see it. Now I can come back into life and be who I am amongst the living. And I will be a person who will converse, play bridge, take classes, tell stories, and sometimes smile. I may even love someone sometime, somewhere, but I will always treasure this dark jewel and keep my sorrow hidden evermore. Okay, so your mother wrote this poem before she died, and it's about how she felt when your father, uh, Gordon, uh, died. Now, before we go on, do you want to make any comment about the poem, the meaning, uh, the impact, anything? When my father was taken from us, when we all felt like we were drowning and we found ourselves calling each other all the time to kind of reach a hand out and keep one another from falling all the way down or falling under the water. Uh, and I felt so badly for my mom and her anguish because they were, they had such an amazing relationship for almost 40 years. Um, but she felt bad for us and she was concerned for us. So, you know, in the darkest times, there's also light because often in a family, you reach out to one another in ways that you never did before. The next thing I want to talk about is your statement. Though your uh, struggle is personal only to you, there are millions of people struggling with issues they may and must face about a lost loved one. And the issues must be faced. The <clears throat> when we walk around in life, we don't know what other people have gone through or are going through. But in any point in time, and you and I have seen this very intimately over the past 14 months, I've literally counseled hundreds of grieving families who've lost loved ones, uh, fathers, sometimes children, uh, you know, uh, spouses, and they, you can't see it when you're out in the world. And, you know, sometimes someone might have their head down or, or not, you know, be as conversant as usual. So looking someone in the eye, uh, you know, smiling, which is very hard with, you know, with our masks on, and, you know, that's a whole other issue in debate. Um, but smiling with your eyes, 
giving people a little bit of encouragement where you can makes all the difference. Let me tell you something real quick, because I know we have many questions to get through. I had a client last year who was suicidal um, and who, you know, had gone to this bridge where he lives, where many people had jumped before and was contemplating suicide, held himself back at the last minute, but really gave up on life. And this is not to toot my own horn, but what I decided to do over and above the obligatory counseling, you know, once a week or sometimes once every two weeks was to send him little one line snippets encouraging him, you know, in the morning, sometimes in the middle of the night, because, you know, as you know, in severe anxiety, people, some of these people don't sleep. And I did that day after day for two months. And then, you know, didn't hear from him. You can't follow up on everybody. You know, you cannot solicit to get them to come back in. About four or five days ago, I learned that he is back in life. He has a new relationship. Uh, he has a job. He's sleeping. He's living his life. So sometimes my point is when we do little things for other people, a smile, a tiny encouragement, you can be helping to save their lives. Absolutely. Um, turn to page four for me. Uh read this poem uh, that's on page four and make a comment. Oh. I have to say that I hadn't been able to read these or from my book, Doggone. Uh, they were hard. You know, I had to learn how to put on my professional uh, stage uh, demeanor. I'm bleeding from my father's heart, a candle crying dark red droplets falling from a cruel fire. My father's heart, waxen tears leak pain, droplets glisten, years. No one hears, no one speaks. Tears wax abundant, hardened, lifeless. I bleed coldly. Emotionally, what, what were you feeling when you wrote that poem? Um, such anguish. And, you know, it, it's interesting because the moment when I'm in my deepest anguish, and I know, you know, the moment of his passing, these were some of my thoughts. And I said, I need to write them down because I need to remember you and I, when are chroniclers, we are recorders and we write down and capture moments. Uh, we both have a background in journalism. And I, I could barely walk when my mother called me, uh, you know, shortly after my father died and she got on the phone and said, Howard, daddy's dead. And <clears throat> it struck something in me, I could barely walk. And I remember I felt like my heart was bleeding. That's where that came from. Yes. Okay, now, I like to give great content in my podcast. And here's the most important thing that he, meaning Gordon, my father, 
taught me was about time. How long we live isn't nearly as important as how we live. Can you comment on your father's uh, uh, statement? My father lives forever um, <clears throat> from his love and his wisdom. And there are people as we have seen who live for decades and just kind of cruise through life and seek whatever pleasure they can and don't aim to give. My father always tried to do his best. At 17, he got his parents to sign a waiver to allow him early entry into the Marines. He left <clears throat> Yale University uh, so that he could serve his country. When he came home, he was then called back after starting a young family, he was called back and served also as a tank officer in Korea. Then when he came back, he had such a sense of gratitude, having seen so many of his comrades die and fall and never come home to their families and to their wives. And with that gratitude, he made every moment count. He loved to laugh. And what I understood was he was laughing for all of the people too who couldn't laugh, who never came back. He loved, he so enjoyed conversation and people, and he had this deep authoritative voice, that kind of really deep bellow, uh, you know, that we really listened to him. He never raised an arm to us. He never had to. He was a strong man who lived his life so fully that even at 60 years, he had done so much. His life was so rich that he lives on. That's so powerful, Howard, because I lost my father about a year and a half ago, and it's still, it's still tough for me to think about it and just where, when I start thinking of him in different ways. So such, such a, powerful thing that we are sharing our, our love for others on this program today. Often, and I think I've noted in the book that that kind of pain, anguish and sorrow also serves to keep the love alive. Um, as human beings, uh, we are warriors. Uh, we suffer from anxiety, worry, depression, etc. So you wrote, humans are warriors. We worry about everything. Sex, death, money, self-image. Oh, we know it's bad to worry. And of course, we worry about that. Even the most mellow people you've ever known who don't seem to have a care in their heads, they worry that they have no worries. Uh, what do you think? I think that my point, and you know, remember, every time we write or we have an insight and then we evolve and we, you know, understand more of what we were trying to say, which is that anxiety and worry are paralyzing. And 
one of my issues in my practice is I'm constantly arguing for optimism. I'm arguing for people to see the best in themselves, even if their friends, loved ones, even if their spouses say, no, you can't do it, it's not gonna work. You've gotta see the best in yourself and not take in and be contaminated by other people's worry or negativity. You have to stand up instead for hope and for action and motion. Hope and optimism translate into effective action. Worry is paralysis and people waste their time. My dear wife, when she starts to worry or have anxiety of, oh, you know, I don't know what that bump is on my arm and blah, blah, blah. I say, well, look, you know, we're going to get it looked at. We're going to take care of it. But the thing that's going to kill you is not the little bump on your arm, but worrying about it. You know, the body hates to worry. There are diseases and autoimmune diseases that I think are exacerbated by us <clears throat> worrying and not liking ourselves and filling ourselves with anxiety. <clears throat> yeah, I agree with you completely. Um, the next point um, I uh, read that you said, we are out to eradicate death and its companion, demon suffering. We have stopped thinking of life in terms of quality and only in terms of time. As physicians and courts around the world seem to battle for who kept the last human cell alive for the longest time. Billions of dollars are made by the simple premise that society not only wants to stay young forever, but to live forever as well. We flock to seminar schools and other dream places that promise systems for reducing suffering. Now, I, I think that suffering is an addiction. I define an addiction as any behavior that you have that causes you pain or someone you love pain and you can't stop it. Using that uh, definition, I believe that suffering is an addiction and one that's fairly common. And I would like for you to tell me what you think. Well, you, you bring up you know some of my favorite points. I completely agree with what you said, that we can become addicted to feeling badly for ourselves. Because, you know, a lot of times people have all kinds of reasons for suffering. Oh, you know, I've lost this one, I'm not feeling well, or, you know, this isn't working out. And suffering, you know, falls into that realm of that paralysis. But you also brought up a very interesting point, uh, you know, in, in reading about how we're so obsessed with extending life, but not really extending living. And I think back on Nelson Mandela, who is one of my heroes. Uh, and I love having people that I can look up to, like Nelson Mandela and Gandhi and Churchill. And the list goes on. I get inspired when I read them and I bring them back to life. And with Nelson Mandela in his his last few years, he had to be fed by a, a stomach tube. Um, he was barely uh, uh, lucid or conscious, and, and Lord knows if he was even in his last, you know, years. Um, 
and it was like they were doing everything to keep him keep his heart beating but he may have arguably not been alive anymore and so we have you know this debate where we turn the elderly sometimes into human laboratories when you know we need to sometimes say like albert einstein uh, had heart ailments in his, I think he, he lived to 74, 75 years, and he had a heart ailment in the 50s, uh, and that was treatable. And he said, I'm not going to get the treatment, and I'm not going to extend my life. I've made my contribution. I've done what God has asked me to do, and it's my time. So I think the point is, we should all be living our lives. Yes, there's a time for mourning. Uh, you know, Neil, as you say, and my father, you know, who, who died from an untimely uh, surgical mistake 37 or 38 years ago, he's still very much alive in my heart. But I never use it to stop living. I never dwell on it. I'm grateful. It almost becomes like a prayer. Thank you, God, for giving me this amazing father and this amazing advantage in living and move on and move ahead and do the best you can from the background and the gifts you were given from those who came before you. That's what they would wish. If they, if they were still alive or if they could speak to you from beyond, what do you think they'd say? What do you think they'd say? You think they'd say, mourn me forever, paralyze yourself, feel bad? Or would they say, look, my time is done, like Einstein said when he was living. My time is done. Now the ball torch has been passed on to you. It's time for you to do your best and stop feeling sorry for yourself. Howard, let me uh, put it in terms of what your father said. He said, enough about me. My time is over. The greatest thing that you can do for me now is to put my death behind you and move forward with full determination. Anything else will be a waste of your time and of my effort in raising you to be a solid human being. We actually insult, we get to a point of mourning, you know, where mourning is important to honor our loved ones. But we actually get to a point, you know, in most religions, you have a memorial. You don't have it all the time, you have it once a year. But we get to a point where we're actually insulting those who came before us if we're continually mourning and not living our lives. You said this writing, meaning my book, had a purpose again, to help people unearth the pain and not just bury it away somewhere as a confused mental blur. We have to look at this painful time over a long stretch and accept and deal with it as we grow and not just hide it away. Boy, <laughs> good for me for writing that. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
there is a catharsis that this particular book, Early Winter, has inspired over the years. And what I am saying is too many people and too many people, too many people, too many families bury their pain, bury their feelings, and keep little secrets about their pain, their anguish, or issues in their family. And when secrets are the toxins of any family, what I'm saying is feel the pain. Don't drink, you know, you, this, I'm getting into your realm about dealing with addiction, and I defer to your wisdom here, but I'm saying don't drink, don't do drugs, don't, don't overeat, don't, you know, stuff your emotions, don't get into some addictive behavior to hide your pain and feelings. Feel your pain, feel your anguish, acknowledge that it's there, don't be afraid, it's not going to destroy you. It's going to be real and it's going to ultimately, it's purging. It's like crying tears of, of sadness, which we know are cleansing. And when you do that, you'll be able to dissolve this anguish over time. And time, you know, grief is, grief allows us the buffer to get over anguish and loss. It allows us those months after loss. But after a reasonable period of time, for some people, it's several months. For some people, it's a year. Uh, but if it goes on for years, that's not fair to the loved one you lost. Well, there you have it. Um, Howard, in my opinion, is the most critically thinking philosopher of the 21st century. And I want uh, for you to listen to all of his other programs about other books that he's written. And you can do that by going to www.freedomfromaddiction.libson.com. You spell Libson, L-I-B as in boy, S-Y-N. And then scroll down. And every time that you see a program by Howard Bronson, listen to it. Howard, do you want to give them um, a um, idea of how that they can get your books? You can go to Waldorf, W-A-L-D-O-R-F, publishing.com or Amazon. The name of the book is Early Winter. It's a bereavement classic. Um, you can also find a little snippet of an interview uh, of uh, actual video of me talking about the book on our home website of free enterprise solutions. That's free enterprise solutions.com. And let me close by saying to people out there listening, grieving, going through sadness, especially what we've gone through in this past year, what's done is done and it's sad and it's hard and it's unfair, but the best thing you can do to tribute those loved ones who are no longer with us is to live your life fully. And to the audience that's listening today, it's a pleasure to have you listening today to my show. My sincerest desire is for you to get something from it that will make your life richer, fuller, and safer. And as you know, 
My name is Reverend Wynn Henderson as an ordained Christian minister and a retired medical doctor. I have a dual perspective to bring all problems in your life. This podcast is the longest running signal hosted spiritually based radio internet talk show in America. It's been on the air for over 20 years. I bring you information about the disease of addiction, your purpose in life, and investigative reporting on truth just below the surface. My mission or purpose is to spread the message that there is a cure for every addictive behavior. This is a spiritual cure, and the treatment program is profiled in my book, Freedom from Addiction 3. If you meet three simple criteria, you will get well. I have um, three, you can start your journey. The first I gave you was my podcast, freedomfromaddiction.libson.com. The second is a link to my website where you can find out more about my work with addiction. It's www.revwinhendersonmd.com. And the final resource is my Twitter account. You search uh, at uh, hugo.com for at Hugo the Artist. There you will find inspirational and educational daily pearls of wisdom that will help you with your life. Howard, thank you for being on the show and I can't wait for you to come back and do another program. An honor to be here, Reverend. Neil, thank you for... Yeah, thank you. Thank you. When it was great information. Thank you again, Howard. Very uh, welcome. Perfect. All right. Uh, that was Freedom from Addiction, Truth, Justice, Below the Service, Neil Haley Show. Take care, guys.